Welcome to our series and our teaching here on the attributes of God. If you are watching us on our YouTube channel or on social media, on Facebook, we are so glad you are joining us with, uh, with uh, all that are here today. Uh, I just want to uh, begin now this uh, new, uh, new week. We are in week eight. Uh, of this attribute of the attributes of God and learning and understanding the attributes of God and so this week we are focusing on God's truthfulness God's truthfulness and how it is that God demonstrates his truthfulness in his his essence and so the title of the teaching of the sermon of this week is God's perfect reality God's perfect reality in that God always presents uh, the reality of what things are as they are perfectly and that really is, in a sense, the truthfulness of God. But we're going to unpackage that as we as we go today. So, uh, my my hope and my desire, uh, as we continue in this series, as we pursue God and His attributes, as we uh, better understand God and His essence and His nature through His attributes, my my hope and my desire is that as we as we do this, as we sort of fix our attention. Uh, on God and, and more specifically on the truthfulness of God on the trueness of God uh, that it, and as we as we savor you know the the immeasurable riches of Christ in his truthfulness that uh, that it would cause in us uh, an affection towards God uh, uh, an ever-increasing affection for him an ever-increasing affinity for him uh, and an ever-increasing devotion to him that as we see and savor, as we focus our attention, that it would lead to a greater affection for Christ and a more wondrous and magnificent and reverent worship of him. And so I hope that is, you know, the, the trajectory uh, of our faith life as we consider these things about God and the attributes of him. And so what we're doing here is, is that we're laying a biblical foundation for who we know God to be. And this is so vital. It is so critically important right now as, as the church uh, that we remain committed and demonstrate fidelity to God's word in knowing God. It is critical that we do this. And, and, and Paul even alludes to this uh, in his in his letters and one of in one of those letters he he talks about this in his second letter to Timothy who's leading a church uh, in the city of Ephesus and in second Timothy chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 this is what Paul says uh, to Timothy he says for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off uh, into myths. And so the idea is that God, uh, that Paul is warning Timothy, stick to the truth, preach the word, preach Christ's teachings and stay there. Stay committed to that, show fidelity to that so that you would not wander off into myth, so that your church, the people that are entrusted to you would not wander off into myths, into false teaching, into false understanding about Christ and about God. Because the time is coming where people are going to want to acquire for them teachers that are going to suit their own passions, that they're going to want to have, they're going to have itching ears, and they're not going to want to endure sound teaching that doesn't tell them what they want to hear. Oftentimes, the, the gospel of Christ is so offensive because it tells people what they don't want to hear. 
It displays the reality of, of our sinfulness, our brokenness, our inability to, to, to serve God, to please God outside of Christ. And so Paul is saying, stay, stay committed, endure in the word, preach Christ, preach his teaching, share and admonish those in the teachings of Christ because those and many will turn away and they will turn to their own teachers that are telling them what they want to hear. And to a certain degree, that's happening now, I believe, uh, in the church, in the body of Christ, that uh, so many are, are going to and turning to those that are just telling them what they want to hear. Uh, so much of the church is, is, is filled with teachings that are rooted in motiv motivational speaking, you know, uh, five-step processes, um, self-help solutions, um, uh, moralism, therapeutic moralism that teaches just be a good person to do good things. But Paul said that people will turn away. They will turn away to those who are just going to tell them what they want to hear. Don't do that. Stay committed to the teaching of Christ, to the gospel, which I've entrusted you with. And Jesus also made mention of this, uh, this uh, the vitality of sticking with the truth, of, of knowing the truth, and of worshiping God in the truth. He said in John chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, uh, when he is talking with the woman at the well from Samaria, uh, he has a back and forth with her, and he says this to her in verse 22. He says, uh, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, if you are going to worship God, you must worship him in agreement with the reality of who he is and who he has said he is through the representation, the clear and accurate representation of God in his word, that God desires those who worship him in spirit, that when we worship in spirit is not constricted to spatial means, that we don't just come to a place to worship God, that we worship God in spirit in that we can worship him anywhere, that we are not confined to spatial limitations, but also in truth, in that it is impossible to worship God outside of truth. That the minute we wander off into myths and false teaching, we are no longer worshiping God, but worshiping a God of our own making, of our own opinion, of our own wisdom. But we must worship God in truth, in accord with the reality of who he says he is. So what is truth? What is the truthfulness of God? Pontius Pilate uh, had this question for Jesus. You know, Pontius Pilate, who, who had ascended to the, to the rank and, and, and to the status of tremendous influence, wielding uh, incredible power, being brought up in, in, a, in, a, in a culture that is, was heavily influenced by Greek philosophers and teaching teachers and learners. This same Pontius Pilate, who at the height of his, his influence and power with so many uh, teachers and philosophers at his disposal to learn from. 
Pilate still struggled with this question and the answer to it. What is truth? In fact, every culture wrestles with this question. Every culture uh, wants to pursue truth and it puts a continual high premium placed on its acquisition. But the, the pursuit of truth is something that is, that is highly esteemed in culture and people will pay uh, a premium for the, for the possession of truth. People desperately trying to make sense of the world around them, their own life, their circumstances. Do it through the pursuit of truth. They want to know what's true. We are encouraged by this culture and in every culture before us to seek our own truth. We are inspired to pursue enlightenment. We are told open-mindedness is the doorway to understanding. That broad thinking is the path or moralism is the path to righteousness. The culture and in many respects the the church as well as is fraught with endless sources presenting worldly wisdom and five-step processes to achieve greater illumination superlative sophistication and the advancement of spiritual awakening it is happening within the church as well as in the culture You need to look no further than the Enneagram, which has no basis in Scripture, no foundational truth, uh, you know, that is uh, directed and, and taken from God's Word. It is something that is wholly um, secular uh, that has been repurposed and repackaged for the church. And the church has taken this and has used it to pursue the truth of who they are. They somehow have uh, convinced themselves that something from a completely ungodly source has any bearing and can do anything uh, to reveal the truth of who God is and how God has created us. It is the culture uh, infiltrating the church uh, with the ways of the, of the culture and, and the characteristics of the culture and has convinced the church in some respects that we can uh, acquire and possess the truth about God and us uh, through uh, unbiblical, ungodly sources. The culture presents truth as subjective, wavering, open to interpretation, never constant, changing over time. The culture seeks, and to a certain degree, the church seeks to redefine truth as belief, in other words, what you believe is true. In other words, what you believe about God is true. Uh, we can acquire teachers and, and listen to those who, who claim to uh, speak the truth about God, but yet rely so much of their own personal worldly wisdom and opinion and have repackaged uh, their own experiences and has presented it as the truth. And meanwhile, they're leading us away from the truth because uh, their teaching is not rooted in God's word, but rooted in their experiences and their own wisdom. In many ways, truth no longer is accountable to objective facts, but is continually being reshaped and reformed by one's convictions. What you believe about God becomes true. Not necessarily what God says about himself is true. 
So when our feelings, our experiences contradict God's truth in his word, we oftentimes will believe our own experiences over what God says about himself. Belief is no longer predicated on truth, but truth is determined by subjective opinion, both in the culture and in the church. But the fact remains, no pursuit in life provides for us an accurate and sincere understanding of reality. We can never see reality for what it truly is. Everything we see is through a lens of distortion. Everything we see through our own lens is through a lens of compromise. That we can't see the reality of anything for what it truly is fully because of our corrupted nature. But it is only God that can do this. God's assertion of his absolute and objective truth stands in direct defiance to the cultural narrative. And we must look beyond the culture, beyond our own conviction, beyond our own opinion, beyond our own belief systems to apprehend the ideal of absolute truthfulness that only resides in Christ. We must look to him. So the truthfulness of God, what is it? What is God saying about himself with regards to this attribute? What is God saying about himself when we see God's word, when we search God's word, when we dig deep, when we plunge the depths of his word? What is it that God has shown us about himself in his truthfulness? Because that word truth, unlike last week, the immutability of God, that word truth occurs many times in scripture. In fact, in its many various forms, it occurs over 150 times in the New Testament. And, and Strong's Concordance defines that Greek word that is rendered truth this way. Truth, but not merely what is said or spoken, but an idea, reality, sincerity, straightforwardness, uprightness, that which agrees with fact or reality. Simply stated, the study of God's truthfulness is this, that God is unsurpassed in his ability to present with stunning precision the reality of all things perfectly. God shows us the reality of everything in accord with how it really is. God presents and demonstrates the reality of himself, of us in the, word, in the world, exactly how it is. In other words, God tells it like it is. God tells it like it is. He is consummate in his accuracy, in revealing the actuality of himself, of us, and everything in the world. God because of his truthfulness, intrinsically demonstrates that he cannot be made up or invented. God cannot be made up because God intrinsically is true and possesses the attribute of truthfulness. Nothing about God's being is counterfeit. What is God saying about himself in his truthfulness? Well, that he cannot act erroneously. God says that the substance of his nature occurs undistorted. God's decisions are never fabricated. His counsel is never spurious. God's plans will always be executed with the utmost honesty and sincerity. He is not prone to fraudulent declarations. 
that he is incapable of promoting fairy tales or tall tales or mythical legends. In other words, we cannot pursue God and the truthfulness of God through mysticism, that God is not ambiguous or unclear about the nature of who he is, and that he is not intending to reveal any more secret knowledge about who he is than what he's already revealed through his word. That we cannot pursue God through mystical endeavors. God's word can never be misleading, insincere, or ambiguous. He has no ability to engage in anything underhandedly or dishonestly. He is not cunning, crafty, or sly. God's truthfulness renders God eternally free from error. Eternally free from error in every matter according and concerning himself and us in the world. God's truthfulness renders him and illustrates the godness of God. God God's, God's godness, the, the wonder of who he is, 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 is finds its, its, uh, it, the pinnacle of it, it finds itself in, its, in his truthfulness. The paramount to his character is his truthfulness. And that it renders him unrivaled and matchless, unequaled, incomparable. So what can we sink our teeth into about God's truthfulness? What does God's word uh, explicitly say about his truthfulness? What is it that we can see in God's word that demonstrates his truthfulness? I'll give you three things. I'll sort of lay them out for you for a moment. We're going to look at God's truthfulness in his essence, uh, God's truthfulness um, in, his, uh, in, his, in his word, and God's truthfulness in his leading. God shows us his truthfulness in these things. There are many more, but we're going to stick with these for a moment. God's truthfulness in his essence beautifully resounds his commitment to present the reality of who he is with unparalleled accuracy. God in his truthfulness always shows himself to be who he is perfectly uh, without any sense of compromise or distortion that he always shows himself perfectly for who he is. He is truthful in his essence. Look at John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, what does this mean? Well, Jesus is saying that I am the way. In other words, there's no other way to God. There's no other way to be reconciled to God. But it is only through me. It is only through faith in me. It is only by your profession of faith, by, by the profession of your lips and the believing in your heart that you will be saved, that you can come to God, that you can be reconciled to him, that you can be forgiven, that your sins are forgiven and are atoned for, that God doesn't count anything against you, but accepts you lovingly as his child. It is only through Christ. There is no other way to God. There are not multiple ways to the Father. But it is only through Christ and his shed blood on your behalf that rescues you and brings you back to the Father. He said, I am the truth. Not just that I speak truth or that I think truth or that every action is truth or truth. 
and that he does everything with truthfulness. But, but Jesus is saying, I am truth, that my very essence and nature is true. And he says, I am the life, in that life comes only through me, both life on this earth spiritually and eternal life with me in the presence of the Father comes through me. But make no mistake, Jesus is not saying everything I say is true. He's saying, I am truth, in the sense that uh, truthfulness makes up and is part of the substance and the sum of my very essence. And God's truthfulness perfectly describes every other attribute that makes him God. Just like the other attributes, we can look at this one as perfectly coalescing around the others. So in other words, God's truthfulness is in his unchangingness. That God is truthfully unchanging, but he's also unchanging in his truthfulness. And so they all perfectly describe the other. And they are all perfectly existing in their fullness in the Trinity all the time. So that means that God in his love that he gives is true. That God perfectly represents uh, the reality of love in his essence, in his truthfulness. And that he perfectly represents and displays the reality of grace in his essence. And so it is with his patience and his goodness and also in his wrath and in his sovereignty. From eternity past, God's truthfulness is beheld in the Trinity. From the very beginning, God infinitely is truthful. Even before he spoke creation into being, God was truthful. God relies on no other action or word or expression to broadcast his truthfulness that is uh, simply existent within himself. In other words, God didn't have to declare or, or, or create the world to prove his, his truthfulness. He didn't have to save man to prove his truthfulness. But God in his perfectness was existing in his truthfulness in the Trinity. That, that, that Christ the Son knows the Father for who he really is. That the Father knows the Spirit in perfect relationship with who he really is. And that the Spirit knows the Son. And that they are all uh, equally, intrinsically, infinitely in existence with one another in the truthfulness of their being. That they know exactly uh, who the other are and the reality of them is perfectly display, displayed within themselves. So Christ doesn't act outside of God's truthfulness. God doesn't act, act outside of the truthfulness of Christ. The Spirit doesn't act outside of the truthfulness of, the, of Christ and the Son and the Father. God relies on nothing else to display his truthfulness outside of him and his essence. Look at 1 John 5, 20. This, uh, this is such a great passage that talks about the truthfulness of God. It says here in 1 John 5, 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that Christ has come. Christ has come into the world. He's condescended into the world from above, from the very throne of God. He has come to us. 
and he has given us understanding. And this word that John uses is a word that he doesn't use uh, in the whole of his gospel or any other part of his epistles or in his work of revelation. He, he does not use this word in any other place except for this one passage. This one word that we render understanding means uh, a disposition of mind and heart that leads to affection. So in other words, uh, when, the, when Christ comes and the Son of God comes, he gives us understanding. In other words, he changes our disposition. He changes our disposition of our heart and of our mind. In other words, our disposition, our focus, our attention now becomes on him. Uh, it used to be on ourselves. It used to be on everything that we loved. It used to be on our own desire. It used to be in our own life. It used to be in accord with what we valued, what we considered important, what we longed for. But John says he comes now and gives us all understanding he has given us understanding he changes our disposition so that our affections turn to him and away from those things that are not of him he comes and he gives us that and then he says so that we may know so what is this for so that we may know he has given us understanding he's changed our disposition of our heart and our mind so that we may know him who is true so god comes and changes that disposition through the hearing of the good news through the hearing of the gospel paul said in romans 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it is through the hearing of Christ and the good news that Christ has done all of this for me. He has come and has died a death in my place. That he's reconciled me to the Father. That he's forgiven me. He's atoned for every uh, transgression that I have ever committed towards God. In the hearing of this good news, it brings an understanding. It brings a dispositional change in the mind and the heart towards Christ. And this is so that we may know him. And this idea of knowing him is this sense of being complete and settled. So we are complete in our knowing. We, we, we come to know Christ for who he truly is. And then we are settled in our hearts about who he is. So that we may know him who is true. That we come to an understanding and are settled in the truthfulness of Christ. And then he goes on to say, and we are in him so that so we know him who is true and we are in him who is true. And this idea of being in Christ uh, refers to salvation, that we put our faith in Christ. That is, Christ changes our disposition through the spirit. He changes that so that we may be complete in knowing him for who he really is, that we are settled in that. And that leads to salvation, putting our faith in him so that we are in him who is true, and so that we believe in Christ by faith and in him alone in agreement with what is actually true about him. There are so many that come to Christ uh, that, that, that try to put their faith in Christ, but they are presented a different Christ. They are presented a false Christ and a false gospel that's not rooted in Christ's death, his uh, re redemptive work, uh, forgiveness of sin, repentance, uh, people come to Christ just for what they, he can do for them, not what, what he's done for them. And so when you come to Christ, you must come to him and put your faith in him. A true faith rests in the reality of who Christ really is. 
So we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus. He is the true God and eternal life. This is God's truthfulness in his essence. Also, God is truthful in his leading. God's truthfulness boldly demonstrates his commitment to lead his people into the reality of who he is with stunning and staggering authenticity. God is committed to leading his people into the truthfulness of who he is. He is truthful in his leading. He will never lead us astray. He will never lead us into a false understanding of who he is. Only men do that. Only we do that and only others do that. That's why it is so critical to remain in the truth of Christ in his word and abide in his teaching. Because as Paul said, there's going to be some that are going to want to veer off and listen to teachings that just tell them what they want to hear and not listen to the truth and wander off into myth. But God always is committed to leading his people into the truthfulness of who he is. And how does he do this? Jesus foreshadows this uh, in John chapter 16. How is it that God leads us into the truthfulness of who he is? How does God lead in truth? Jesus shows us and foreshadows this in John. John 16, 12 to 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. In other words, you can't understand them now. The, 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 you have not come far enough to understand what I still want to say to you, but you have to continue in me in order to bear or understand what I want to tell you. They had only come so far with him and they had a limited experience with Christ. And so their limited experience uh, did not give them the capacity to fully understand what he wanted to tell them that he, uh, that he wanted to tell them that was coming in the future. And then he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things to come. He will glorify me. In other words, Jesus is saying uh, the primary function of the spirit that's going to come is to lead you into all the truth. And the primary function of the spirit is Christocentric, Christ-centered, Christ-exalting. Who is it that the spirit is going to glorify? Not himself, but Christ. So in some sense, the function of the Holy Spirit is subservient to Jesus, subservient to Christ. Even though the Holy Spirit is perfect and complete and co-eternal in his essence, that he is no less God than the Father or, or, or the Son, there is this sense that in the function of the Spirit, uh, that he's subservient to Christ, and that he doesn't speak his own words, but what Christ tells him, and that he will ultimately glorify, always continually want to glorify Christ, not himself. And this is how we are led into all the truth. That the primary function or responsibility for the spirit living in us is to lead us into all the truth about Christ. Jesus said that he had many things that he wanted to share with them, but they, they couldn't bear. Now, Keep in mind, we're talking about his disciples and his apostles. That's who he's speaking to. That's the audience. And so we have to understand that, that Christ is saying, I have many things that I want to say to you, being his disciples and his apostles. But he can't right now, but he will be able to. 
in due time, and the spirit of truth will come and lead them into all that he still wants to say. Now, those many things we can point to as what Christ revealed to his apostles and his disciples uh, through the writing of the New Testament. We know that all uh, scripture is breathed out and inspired by God through the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus is talking about the many things that are to come, uh, he, most likely he's referring to uh, what he was going to inspire his disciples and apostles to write about him in the New Testament after his death because the gospel message is complete. Uh, the gospel finds its, its pinnacle in the cross. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, all that the Spirit leads them into is the completeness and fullness of the message of the cross in Christ crucified. And so Christ comes and leads them into all the truth through the Spirit which gives them understanding in all things. And those many things are the written word of God refined in the New Testament, given to us through the inspiration of the Spirit, through the author of the apostles and the disciples. And we too are led into uh, this same truth of Christ. Not that we are being led into the truth of Christ to, to um, declare new truth, but we are led into the truth of Christ by the Spirit who brings illumination to the reality of Christ through the word of Christ. Let me say that again. The truth of Christ by the spirit we are led into. The truth of Christ by the spirit who brings illumination to the reality of Christ through the word of Christ. 1 John 5, 6 says this. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only but by the water and the blood and the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth john had to say this because they were uh, false teachers out there they were claiming that jesus became god at his baptism that jesus was just a man until his baptism uh, that we read in the gospels and that he wasn't God until that point in time and so uh, john is refuting this teaching by saying that jesus he came by water and blood that Jesus was fully God at his baptism fully God at his crucifixion that Jesus comes and is unchangingly always truthfully God so God leads us into all the truth and he is truthful in his leading by the spirit and that is the function and the main function of the spirit so all of the fruits of the spirit are unto one purpose, to bring us into the reality of Christ. All the gifts of the Spirit are unto one purpose, to bring us into the reality of the gospel of Christ. They are to all testify and bear witness to that truth. Finally, truthfulness in his word. And by his word, I mean the gospel. God's truthfulness gives rise to the jaw-dropping reality and the reliability of every word he has spoken and promotes the splendor of the genuineness of the gospel. Listen to this in Ephesians chapter 1. This is what Paul says in verses 13 and 14. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, had believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So uh, right there, Paul draws a connection between the word of truth and the gospel of salvation. That the word of truth 
uh, in essence, presents the gospel of salvation, that, that the very essence of God's truth points to that stunning reality of the good news of salvation through Christ alone and his shed blood alone on our behalf for our sin. The gospel exclusively achieves our salvation and does that and does so through the hearing of that gospel and by the grace of Christ, which leads us by faith into the reality of that truth. Listen to this in Colossians chapter 1, 5 and 6, Paul says this, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth comma the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand and understood the grace of god in truth so god in his grace uh, gives us something that we don't deserve and uh, more specifically salvation through the hearing of the gospel the hearing of the good news and this is the word of truth in that god leads us into all the truth and god is truthful in his word through the gospel that, that god and all that he uh, was pointed to in the old testament through the prophets fulfilled everything through the gospel of christ and so God demonstrates the truthfulness of who he is in his word by bringing to pass all that the prophets had, had spoken about in the gospel of Christ through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 3 and 6, this is good. And by good, he's referring to a life that is quiet and dignified in prayer. He said, this is good. This is referring to the prior verse. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior to live this way. Who desires all people, this is God's desire, all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. That is uh, the gospel in a nutshell. It is God uh, desiring for all to come to a knowledge of truth. And what is that truth? That Christ came and richly expressed and demonstrated in his life the gospel, the good news, that he's come to ransom a bride, that he's come to ransom those from the slave market of sin and deception and brokenness. He's come as a ransom to pay the price to redeem us, to relieve us of the guilt of our own sin before a holy God and bring us back to him. That is the word of truth. That is the gospel that, that God so, uh, so wonderfully expresses in his truthfulness in his word. So what is produced when a man beholds or a woman beholds the truthfulness of God in the gospel? Well, Paul shows us what is the result of beholding the truth and the truthfulness of God in his gospel. It is sanctification. Ephesians chapter 4, 20 to 24 says this, But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him, and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. In other words, as you hear about Christ, as you are taught in the truthfulness of Christ, as you are taught his commands and are living in obedience to them because it is a desire of yours, what is happening? You are putting off the old self and putting on a new self. You are born again in the spirit. You are putting off the old and putting on the new. The old uh, is, is owned. It is, belongs to your former manner of life and it is corrupted. God comes in the truthfulness of his gospel and brings sanctification to all those who behold that truth, that we are putting off the old. Uh, God is not just revealing uh, something that's always been there in us all along. That is not what the gospel does. That is not the product of hearing the gospel and believing Christ and putting our faith in Christ. It is not simply revealing. Sanctification is not simply revealing what has already always been there. No, it is putting off our old corrupted nature and putting on a new nature which is being renewed in the spirit of the mind. And it is putting on a new self completely. It's not simply tearing off an old self to reveal what's always been there, but it is putting off the old and putting on a brand new one that we did not have that is being renewed in the spirit of our mind. So as we are renewed by the transformation of our mind, we begin to live life in accord with how God wants us to live, that our obedience is wrapped up in the transforming of our mind, that we begin to love the things that God loves, and we begin to desire the things that God desires, and we begin to uh, have a desire in us that is caused by the Holy Spirit to live in accord with how God wants us to live so that it pleases God, to love God. But it only comes by faith. And we are not saved by it, but it is the evidence of a true work of faith bearing fruit in the transformation of the mind in our sanctification, being set apart for God. So what is the consequence when a man or a woman uh, does not continually behold the truthfulness of God? What is the consequence of, of not desiring and not walking in the truthfulness of God? Well, we wander into error. As Paul said, uh, those are going to come, they're going to seek their own teachings to tell them what they want to hear. And what's the consequence of that? They will wander off into myths, to teachings that are not true about Christ. That is the danger we uh, subject ourselves to when we decide not to walk in the truthfulness of God and to, to not walk in the trueness of his gospel. We wander off. First John 4, 6 says this, We are from God, speaking about him, uh, the disciples and the apostles. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The idea here is that, that John is saying that what we're saying, what we're preaching, the teachings of Christ that he's given to us, that he's inspired us to speak and to write, uh, the, the very New Testament, if, if we're not going to live in accord with the teachings of Christ uh, in his word, then what happens? We are walking in a spirit of error. We are not walking in a spirit of truth. 
Those who don't, do not listen to us, he says, those who, who hear our teaching and, and deny it, those who hear our teaching and don't accept it, or those who hear our teaching and then build upon it, or those who hear our teaching and subtract from it, those people do not know God. They do not have God. They do not listen to us, and therefore they are not operating in the spirit. They are not being led in the spirit of truth, but by the spirit of error. Second John uh, verse 9 uh, puts it pretty clear. He says this, and kind of building on this same idea. He says, everyone who goes on or beyond or ahead of and does not abide in the teachings of Christ, and that's what they were bringing, the teaching of Christ. He said, those who go beyond or ahead, those who add to, those who experiment with, those who take away from, subtract from the spirit or the teaching of Christ, those who go beyond, ahead of, do not have God. In other words, they're not walking with God. They're not walking in accord with the spirit of truth, but in the spirit of error, maybe in the spirit of man, maybe in the spirit of tradition, maybe in the spirit of, of hearing something over and over again that's been told by you that you begin to believe it about Christ, even though God's word doesn't uh, support that biblically. He said, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Father and the son and so that's why it is so critical to understand that god and his truthfulness is truthful in his essence he's truthful in his leading and he's truthful in his word in, in the gospel god in his truthfulness presents the reality and the actuality of all things as they truly are as we behold the truthfulness of god the spirit of truth leads us into the magnificent precision of the reality of who we are before God and the stunning beauty of the reality of the gospel to rescue us from our sin, establish us firmly in the love of God and the forgiveness of God. So we must hold true. We must hold fast. We must be committed to and demonstrate complete fidelity and allegiance to uh, the word of God, the truthfulness of God as he has shown himself in his word and we must render these things the, the truthfulness of God in his essence the truthfulness of God in his leading and the truthfulness of God in his word and the gospel as things that are paramount in our lives in our pursuit of God and all that he is so that is the truthfulness of God as we see in God's word that is what he's said about himself uh, in accord with his word and I hope uh, in some way we can take this, uh, this teaching, this, this truth about God, this, this, uh, this um, revelation about God in his word, and, and we can rest uh, in his truthfulness, that he is who he says he is, that he's doing what he said he's going to do, that his gospel is true, it is unchanging, and it is by only through Christ and his gospel that we can come to God be reconciled, be forgiven, and, and be joined together in relationship with him. It is the truthfulness of God that boldly shows us the godness of God in that he presents the reality of who he is, who we are, and who the world is as it truly is. And that's the truthfulness of God. So I want to thank you guys for uh, being a part of uh, this teaching and our series together. Uh, we'll join you guys next week 
uh, for week nine as we discover uh, the next attribute of God. But until then, take care, and uh, we'll see you next time.